Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Revolutionary Ideas, the monthly Marxist podcast from Socialist Alternative. In recent months, the growing clashes between Trump and China under Xi Jinping have grown more and more acute. With the threat of further conflict and even war on the horizon, it will be more important than ever that Marxists come to grips with the situation. At the same time, the mass movement of young people and workers in Hong Kong demanding democratic rights has been viciously attacked by China's dictatorship. So how can we show solidarity? And what are the prospects for further uprisings in the future? To find out, Connor and Tom will be speaking to two socialist activists, Jacko, who's an international socialist alternative supporter from Hong Kong, and Vincent Collo from ChinaWorker.info. So over to you, Connor and Tom. Okay, so we're joined here today by Jacko, who's a uh, member of ISA from Hong Kong, and Vincent Colo from ChinaWorker.info. Thanks for coming along today to discuss. So on June the 30th, the Chinese dictatorship imposed a new national security law on Hong Kong. I was wondering, Jacko, if you could maybe tell us a little bit more about what this law means and does it spell the end of the mass democracy struggle that uh, took place in Hong Kong last year? The Chinese government imposed this uh, national security law in Hong Kong, is, uh, which is a biggest attack on the democratic rights in Hong Kong uh, since the handover. And uh, this is a retaliation to the uh, huge mass movement in Hong Kong last year. And they, uh, the attempt of the CCP regime is to uh, smash any opposition voice. And they think that they can do it to suppress any opposition voice permanently. And so uh, because they cannot tolerate uh, any mass movement in Hong Kong that can spill over to mainland China, and because this is uh, this can pose a threat to the ruling of the regime. And now uh, the law, after the law is passed, uh, there's already a very, a lot of shocking uh, political attacks on different aspects. This include the biggest uh, opposition newspaper the office was raided by the police, and the boss uh, of the of this newspaper was arrested and charged with national security law. And also, a lot of uh, elected legislators from the liberal uh, pan-democratic camp uh, were arrested. And just today, there were two more legislators arrested and charged of rioting uh, in the protest last year. Also, a national security uh, office is established in Hong Kong. Uh, They are just a secret political force, political police force, uh, equivalent to Gestapo with unlimited power. The law itself includes uh, like subversion of the regime, which means that you cannot uh, say down with the CCP dictatorship or down with one party rule. And this is always has been always a core demand in the democratic movement. And also, uh, secessions can be charged for also can be charged for life imprisonment. Uh, this is not only about the Hong Kong independence, uh, but also to any cause for self determination in Taiwan, Tibet, and Xinjiang can violate this law. And already there were uh, groups that who came to support independence uh, were charged uh, with this law. And also the different organization uh, groups that involved uh, from the pro-US liberals, from some Hong Kong nationalist force, that uh, they seek the foreign government support. And now they also be charged of foreign forces. And of course, this uh, law is not just against uh, right-wing threat to the working class solidarity, which ISA has been very actively doing uh, during the uh, movement last year. So yes, uh, no doubt this is a very big setback for the mass movement in Hong Kong uh, last year. And, and now there's no more or any degree of autonomy 
and uh, there's no the Hong Kong is same as a dictatorial system and so the level of protest inevitably has been going down even before the uh, introduction of the national security law it was partly because of the police repression uh, and also the pandemic and also the movements uh, without a strong and clear leadership and starting to have a loss of direction. However, we don't say the regime or the government are now becoming stabilized. Uh, the MR's anger still exists in both in Hong Kong and also in mainland China. And the regime in China, they are very split with a lot of big crisis under the economic crisis of the pandemic and also within the party. So the, the movement can explode again at any time. We are not sure that it will just explode in Hong Kong again, but the starting point of the, uh, the movement can be start from China, and which can also have a huge, will have a huge effect to Hong Kong. Uh, so yeah, we are in a different stage of the, uh, and the uh, another stage of the movement and this attempt of the CCP to just crush any opposition voice in Hong Kong will not work. And the situation will just become more explosive. Okay, thanks for that answer, Jacko. I mean, one interesting and very important point that I think you made there was that in, in spite of this national security law, marking a step um a stepping up of repression from the dictatorship in spite of that it won't completely destroy all potential uh, for struggle even if the law creates some very difficult circumstances repression for democracy activists and socialist activists there is still a lot of anger underneath the surface against the role of the Chinese regime, against the role of, of, of Xi Jinping. I think that's something that we have to really emphasize. And I mean, one thing that came up in my mind from what you've just been saying there, and this is maybe more of a question uh, for Vincent, the national security law, the crackdown in Hong Kong has become a major issue in the deepening conflict between US imperialism on the one hand and Chinese capitalism on the other. It's been described by some people in, in, in the press as a new Cold War. A cold, you know, the, the Cold War was obviously this conflict between uh, the US and uh, the Stalinist uh, USSR in the, in, in, in the 20th century, the Soviet Union. Why is Hong Kong so important in this conflict? Yeah, well, I think that um, uh, the, the national security law uh, and the crackdown in Hong Kong marked um, a significant escalation of the conflict between the US and China. Um, it was a signal really from uh, Xi Jinping's regime um, that they were uh, not prepared to make concessions or compromise, that they were going to be very hard line in defending Chinese sovereignty, their sphere of influence. Um, and it, it was therefore, it, it, from a symbolic point of view, it was a kind of power play by Xi Jinping, uh, aimed at the US, aimed at the Trump administration, but also aimed at the masses in China, um, where the economic crisis, um, the, the social crisis that's been aggravated by the pandemic means that the CCP regime is quite worried now about the danger of a, uh, a repeat, really, of the Hong Kong protest movement, but on a much bigger and a much more uh, for the regime, much more dangerous uh, level uh, with the movement in China itself. Um, I think that to understand why Hong Kong is a kind of front line in this new imperialist Cold War, it's not the only front line. Um, there are other flashpoints such as Taiwan, uh, the South China Sea, um, where there is a increasing naval rivalry that could trigger a conflict. Uh, between the U.S. and China or between uh, proxies of the U.S. and China. The Belt and Road, this gargantuan infrastructure project launched by the Chinese regime seven years ago, which is also an issue of um, extreme rivalry between the West 
uh, and the Chinese regime. There are others, but I think that the, to understand China, uh, Hong Kong's importance, firstly, it's the third most important financial center in the world after New York and London. The financial sector in Hong Kong is worth around uh, 10 trillion US dollars, the assets in the banking system and, and, and so on. Um, and, and the Economist magazine said you should think about Hong Kong as like an electrical transformer that connects um, two circuits with different voltages. In other words, on the one hand, the dollarized world economy, and then on the other side of it, China's more closed um, economy where you still have this kind of wall uh, of exchange controls and capital controls. And Hong Kong is the gateway, it's the conduit. And this has been for decades, really, a key conduit for the Chinese regime to get foreign capital into China, but also, um, as China has reverted back to capitalism, it's been a key conduit for the new capitalist class, um, which is uh, really, it's intertwined with this, the Communist Party dictatorship. It's one and the same thing. Uh, the capitalists are a kind of outgrowth of the CCP. Uh, it's, a, it's a conduit for them to get their assets out. Uh, really, we could say that Hong Kong as an economy is just a giant money laundering center, but it's played a crucial role because China is the second biggest um, exporter of capital. It's got the second largest stock of foreign direct investment after the US globally. And a lot of that money is connected to the, the ruling groups within the CCP, to the big uh, capitalist families and, and, and cliques within the CCP. So what we're seeing now with this polarization between the two major powers in the world is the beginnings of a financial decoupling following on what was the, the decoupling over trade and supply chains that we saw with the trade war of over two years ago that's still going on. Now we're seeing the beginnings of financial decoupling, which could escalate. And Hong Kong is now the kind of front line of this process because if the US has already imposed sanctions, they're very, very superficial at this stage, very mild, largely symbolic sanctions by the Trump administration on certain officials of the CCP and the Hong Kong government. But this can escalate and it can force the Western banks uh, into a very difficult position where, in effect, they have to disengage from Hong Kong. And that's really what's being played out on the, uh, on the financial level. The, 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 the one final thing I want to say on that, it's... It's, of course, it's nothing whatsoever to do with democracy. The US and the Western governments are not at all concerned with defending democratic rights in Hong Kong. The US supports at least 20 dictatorships around the world, outright, unashamed, unabashed dictatorships like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, uh, Kazakhstan. These are regimes that are supported by the US. There's no uh, discourse about human rights as far as those governments are concerned. And that was the case with China as well just a few years ago. It's very, very recently that the US has suddenly discovered that there's a problem with human rights in China. And it's purely a front. It's purely a kind of a, a, a packaging for what is essentially an imperialist conflict over power, over control of markets, over control of the global economy. Yeah, thank you, um, Vincent, for uh, outlining some of these processes that are going on in this conflict. Clearly, the question of the Chinese Communist Party is uh, central to um, understanding the current situation. And uh, Vincent mentioned that this new national security law is itself a message to people in China as, as well as um, the rest of the world. And, um, and also that the actions of the Chinese regime itself in Hong Kong uh, being actually more related to a crisis that's taking place in China itself and even a crisis within the party. So I was wondering maybe, Jacko, if you could go into this in a little bit more detail. The Communist Party, they very fear that the movement in Hong Kong can inspire the mainland Chinese people to uh, protest and to uh, have even a more larger and also a protest that can cause deeper crisis for 
the regime. And that's why they spread huge mass, uh, massive propaganda last year. And now to attack the movement in Hong Kong as being uh, anti-China, pro-US and or separatist. And they because they their audience is main, mostly the mainland Chinese people because they don't want the movement in Hong Kong and that's uh, in, among the mainland Chinese and it will spread uh, with a like a chain reaction. And this also explains uh, why they cannot make a significant democratic concession to the situation in Hong Kong because they are afraid that this uh, will set an example and that will encourage the people in mainland China, they will also have uh, similar demands to challenge the dictatorship. And that's why uh, the movement in Hong Kong itself cannot defeat the regime. Uh, it, although it was very huge, uh, it was very heroic and sacrificing. But uh, the Carrie Lam government last year was not toppled down, uh, although it was paralyzed and in a deep crisis. But there were many times that it was the Beijing government behind the Hong Kong government that saved the, the government. And that's why uh, uh, the, uh, the core of the power, of course, it is in Beijing. Xi Jinping wants to impose the national security law and the repression because he wants to consolidate his own position. Uh, since Xi Jinping came to power in 2012, he centralized the power and to impose a model of personal dictatorship. And that's uh, he wants to, because this is the only way for a dictator uh, like China to solve the domestic uh, crisis because they think by centralizing the power, they can have a stronger grip of control uh, on the local governments. And, and while the local governments uh, more and more, they violate the, they are not cooperative with the central governments on economic policies. And also they want to, he wants to attack the rivalry faction within the party. And now, uh, especially now, there's a big split within the CCP. The rivalry faction of, uh, against Xi Jinping thinks that he creates so much trouble to hardline on Hong Kong and also to US. Uh, and, uh, and also this uh, undermines the uh, foreign uh, interest, the interest of the uh, CCP elites in foreign countries. And that's why he, uh, there's a, uh, if Xi Jinping, the only response by that uh, to with his repression, it is also send a strong signals in China that uh, this is the only way, this is the, this approach is the only way that uh, to do things. And, uh, and if Xi Jinping now try to uh, make concession, it will be huge damage to his authority. It is like he admits that he made uh, mistakes over the past year on how to rule. Uh, the situation in Hong Kong is just a reflection of the crisis in China and also within the Communist Party. There was one thing that I found interesting in what you said just then, Jacko, and, and, and that was when you mentioned the issue of the internal situation inside uh, the Chinese uh, so-called Communist Party, of course, we would say. It's not communist, it's a thoroughly capitalist party. But Xi Jinping and his propaganda machine always tries to put out this image of the CCP being perfectly united. It's what we're led to believe a lot of the time. And because he's done things like, you know, removing term limits, he's crowned himself, you know, what, what gets called the emperor for life. That's, that was the term used at the time. Uh, because he centralised power, increased repression and so on, uh, you know, to, to, to send a message to workers and activists in Hong Kong and on the mainland of China. And that message is that any kind of challenge to the dictatorship of the CCP won't be tolerated. But behind that, I think it would be fair to say there is a reality of some quite harsh factional battles developing underneath the surface within the party. Of course, the CCP is thoroughly 
undemocratic. It's a very closed organisation. It's part of the uh, the uh, the dictatorship. It upholds it. But maybe Vincent might want to go into this issue as well a little bit, because if these internal problems exist in the CCP, what does that mean for the regime? How numbered are its days? Yeah, I think I think that the um, Cold War uh, between the US and China, um, which is the defining feature of our uh, period of world relations at the present time, uh, which in turn has been enormously accelerated and aggravated by the pandemic, um, where the whole issue of um, blame for the coronavirus and who will be the first uh, uh, power, which government will first be able to uh, market a, a vaccine. All of these issues are all connected together. Um, this has put enormous pressure on the Chinese regime. And this is something that's not universally understood. I would say that among other left organizations, but also most mainstream media commentators, they have a very simplistic view of what's going on in China um, because they don't have forces. That's the difference with the ISA because ISA has comrades in China. Um, uh, it's possible, therefore, to give a much more nuanced and um, a realistic picture of what's going on. And the, the reality is that we have this superpower conflict where both governments are in big, big crisis. Uh, that goes, of course, for the US with Trump and the fiasco of the way they've handled the, the pandemic. But it's also, whilst less visible, it's also a very, very serious crisis that's unfolding in China. And this power struggle within the CCP is part of that. And it's very, very influenced by the question of the imperialist conflict. Um, this is one of the key questions, that Xi Jinping has become more and more, um, uh, I wouldn't say isolated, that's perhaps going too far at this stage, but his position has been more and more challenged within the CCP um, regime, within the ruling elite in China, because his policy is seen as being counterproductive clumsy, uh, that it's um, instead of playing to China's advantages um, and taking advantage of the difficulties of Trump and the US uh, uh, government, that the, the Chinese response is actually boosting um, US imperialism's attempt to knit together an anti-China alliance. This is despite Trump. It's, it's almost as if... Um, Trump, despite all of the problems that he's brought to U.S. imperialism, the damage that he's caused to their global brand, if you want to call it that, but nevertheless, Xi Jinping's foreign policy, what's called this wolf warrior diplomacy, that's named after a, a Chinese blockbuster movie, which is about a, a group of Chinese elite soldiers who go to Africa and defeat American mercenaries. Um, the wolf warrior diplomacy um, of hardline nationalism has been counterproductive and it's actually played into the US hands in the course of the Cold War. And this is a big issue within the internal power struggle. One of the factions, a very important faction in the CCP, which is opposed to Xi Jinping, and they weren't always opposed to him, this is a switch over the recent years, is the faction around former President Jiang Zemin. Uh, it's known as the Shanghai faction. And this includes some of the most powerful princelings. These are hereditary leaders. These are uh, powerful capitalists um, uh, who run big business empires within the Chinese economy who trace their um, positions back to their ancestors, uh, their fathers, or uh, in most cases, their fathers, um, who were key figures in the uh, uh, Mao regime and in the Chinese revolution of the 1940s. So the, the princelings, these hereditary leaders, they're very, uh, there's a, a, a large number of them who are concentrated in the Shanghai faction and around Jiang Zemin. And this faction has considerable global investments. Um, they have real estate and they have uh, stocks and they have investments all around the world, but particularly in the US, particularly through Hong Kong, um, in the rest of uh, Asia, and also in Western Europe. And they're very worried about the 
the Cold War and what it could mean to their uh, investments, to their assets, to their property. I mean, we've seen that Trump has now um, banned TikTok, the uh, social media app, the Chinese social media app um, from the US. He's banned over 100 Chinese tech companies in the course of the last few weeks. Um, and Huawei in particular, which is a very important company, which is the flagship of China's 5G technology, effectively a death sentence has been served on the company by the policies of the Trump administration saying that um, or ordering that no US company is to sell uh, semiconductors or software to Huawei. So the anti-Xi faction, there's also material basis for their uh, opposition to Xi Jinping's position because they feel that their own uh, investments are, are at, at risk. Now, that's not that it would be wrong to think that's the whole basis for the power struggle in the CCP. That's just one element of it. But there is a, a feeling amongst growing sections of the CCP hierarchy that Xi Jinping's rule is now endangering their position, endangering the continuation of the regime, that actually he is uh, paving the road for either war or revolution or both. And that's why there's a growing momentum to try to block Xi Jinping. Two years ago, he managed to abolish presidential term limits. He pushed through a constitutional change, which was a kind of, um, took the whole of the CCP uh, uh, elite by surprise. He, he pushed it through, meaning that like Vladimir Putin in Russia, Xi Jinping can continue to rule after his second term is concluded. And the idea, therefore, is that in 2022, she will get a third term and then he'll get a fourth term and he'll continue ruling into his 80s. That no longer, no longer uh, looks as if it's so certain. And in fact, I think that the, the, the forces that are aligning against Xi, Xi Jinping, it's either to, to block him from getting a third term or even to remove him outright. We couldn't rule out military intervention by the PLA. It's not the most likely scenario, but it's not ruled out in the situation that we're going into as the tensions at the top accumulate. And another possible scenario is that you could get uh, the anti-Xi factions combining um, in the course of the next year and a half or so to allow him to continue for a third term, but to impose very heavy conditions that would effectively check his power. Um, maybe the nomination of a successor who would be clearly announced, and that successor would be from a different faction. So it would be a kind of Chinese variant of checks and balances to limit the power of the ruler. And this is why, by the way, we said, and we were alone in that, the ISA were the only people who said when Xi Jinping abolished term limits that this is not actually a sign of strength. The mainstream media were saying she is the most powerful leader since Mao Zedong, that he has unprecedented power. We said that's an exaggeration. We said that it's actually a reflection of a very, very deep crisis within the CCP. Well, now the chickens are coming home to roost as far as that crisis is concerned. Xi Jinping took this unprecedented power into his hands because the factional struggle was draining the vitality of the regime and making it impossible to carry through the policies they needed. But now his power has reached the point where there's a, a growing body of the different factions who want to try and block him. And they, they fear that his, his uh, policies towards the US in Hong Kong, his policies over the economy, his policies in relation to the Belt and Road um, are actually not in the interests of the Chinese regime at this particular state. And it's unprecedented, not just since 1989, Really, you have to go back to the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s, the situation where the premier, the prime minister, number two within the regime, is having his speeches deleted from the internet and from the media by the censors because the propaganda ministry is under the control of Xi Jinping. And, and Li Keqiang, the premier, is in that position now that speeches that he's making are being deleted, his, his speeches are being censored. And, uh, and, and this is the number two official within the regime. And it's an indication of just how acute the power struggle at the top has become. OK, um, obviously, the question of the Cold War and uh, US-China relations is crucial to what's going on in the Chinese Communist Party. But 
I think as well, the question of the US is also important in the struggles of working class people um, as well. I think a lot of people will be wondering about the way the US is seen by movements like the democracy struggle in Hong Kong, where we've seen an increase in support for sanctions against Hong Kong by the US. And uh, generally, the, as the movement's gone on, um, seen elements of this pro-US mood that's developed among some protesters, especially in Hong Kong, as the mass struggles uh, subsided. Given the sharpening of the Cold War, what do the masses in Hong Kong and in China think about this? Does it represent the broad mood of the masses and what effect might that have on the struggle? And also, are there any differences between workers in China and in Hong Kong on this? Maybe Jacko can uh, talk about some of these things. Yes, now there is a big illusion uh, among people who want to challenge the dictatorship. In Hong Kong and China, there's an illusion to the West and the Trump government. And uh, especially in Hong Kong, because people, the protesters, think that they have tried everything uh, from like peaceful marching to anarchistic vandalism to strike action. And they think that uh, now there's still no change of, uh, of the regime. And that's why they think that we, the only, we must try at everything to try to undermine the CCP dictatorship. And that's why there's, uh, uh, and the movement in, the movement has been going down as we uh, said, and that's why there's a more and more hope to put on the foreign intervention, especially from the Trump government. Yes, when the situation, when the movement is going down, the mood is more desperate and to hope that there's a savior from outside who can uh, help the situation in Hong Kong. And uh, this, uh, we at the end of last year, already we could see there, are, there were like uh, tens of thousands of peoples uh, in the rally who raised uh, uh, American flag or British flag to try to get support because there are the further escalation, there's a further escalation between the China-US conflict. Trump tried to use the anti-China card to gain his, his support uh, for the election in November. And uh, also Pompeo last month, he made a very hardline speech against China. And that's why this, uh, this inevitably, this situation is seen as something very uh, hardline and supportive for the movement in Hong Kong. And there are pro-US liberals in Hong Kong who have been actively seeking support by lobbying the uh, right-wing politicians, especially the Republicans in US, to uh, support the situation in Hong Kong. Uh, there were also right-wing uh, uh, Hong Kong nationalists. Also, they are trying to uh, seek support from US and also, also the British government. These new politicians emerged from the movement last year. They are quite, they are dominant in the political map in Hong Kong now. For example, in the by-election, sorry, in the primary election held last month, which was supposed to be primary election for a parliamentary election uh, in September, but the election now is cancelled with the excuse of a uh, pandemic. Elections, those new politicians figure who got most votes were these pro-US liberals or and Hong Kong nationalists. And uh, so the, this kind uh, of sanctions uh, these pro-US liberals and Hong Kong nationalists try to exploit it and to, they propose a slogan of mutual destruction, which sounds very radical, uh, but it means there's no when, but it shows there's no political alternatives. So they propose a mutual destruction with the governments, uh, which partly including that this is to uh, allow support, uh, support uh, sanctions 
or even a war uh, from US uh, on China. And also in China, the mainland China, there's also a layer, uh, younger people, they will see this kind of sanction against officials is positive because they hate the corruption of these officials and a lot of officials, of course, they have a lot of their assets in US or in uh, Western countries. And so they think this kind of punishment they can get support. Uh, they can it can they can support it. And that's why our role, uh, ISA, we want to warn that the role of US imperialism, they don't really care about the democracy struggle in Hong Kong or China. They just change their position for their own geopolitical power struggle. And also we we advocate for our international solidarity action with uh, trade unions and also working class organizations around the world. Like last year, we campaigned uh, against HSBC, which is the multinational bank and who sacked one of our members who tried to organize unions during the strike movement last year. And we organized international solidarity protests in over 20 cities against HSBC. And also we seek for uh, union support around the world to uh, put pressure onto uh, uh, these pr uh, pro-dictatorship uh, capitalist institutions. This, this question of the Cold War has popped up a number of times uh, in, in this discussion. And this is, you know, the question of this, this so-called Cold War has popped up, you know, a number of times in this discussion. You know, this battle between warring imperialist powers uh, for, for control over uh, the world's resources. Of course, this is now stretched uh, in, you know, the news is, of course, the news has spoken about how this is stretched into other areas like the South China Sea to Taiwan and so on. With the Cold War in the 20th century between the US and the, and the Soviet Union, there were real military physical wars that took place as part of it. There was the Korean War, Vietnam, war in Afghanistan in the late 1970s uh, as, a, as a kind of lesser known example. These weren't direct military conflicts in the sense that it wasn't the US army up against the Soviet army. They were proxy wars, proxy wars with proxy armies. Now, Vincent, do you think that a war between the US and China is possible? And if so, what form do you think that that would take? Yeah, well, if you'd have asked me that question a couple of months ago, I'd have given you a different answer. Um, I, I think, unfortunately, there is an increasing danger that there could be a direct military conflict between the US and China. I, I don't think that a full-blown war is... Um, is, is likely. I think that that's a very remote possibility, fortunately. But I think that there is an increasing danger that there could be um, a military clash, uh, a military crisis, um, a, sh a shooting war of a limited character uh, between the two uh, powers, um, not just proxy wars. Now, we've already seen a proxy war this year uh, in a very um, limited form on the Indian border with China. And, and, and th this was extremely significant. I mean, this is the world's first uh, army, largest army, China, against the second largest army, India, um, on a contested border where there's still, there's, there's no agreed border between the two states. Um, and it was the first fatal battles for 60 years. Um, they've had conflicts before, um, even three years ago, but it, it never reached the level that it's reached now. And there's no question the US has been very active on the Indian side in selling arms and in encouraging the Modi government to stand up to China. Uh, Xi Jinping's regime, its motive for the conflict with India was what we've been discussing. It was uh, to show that Xi Jinping is not for compromise, he's not for concessions. It's part of his nationalist strongman image, which is a crucial uh, cement, really, to, for the CCP regime at the present time, or for his regime, to, to hold together. Uh, and there's a, there's a dynamic behind this. 
uh, as we've already discussed um, in this program, uh, Xi Jinping's method of rule means that it's very difficult for him to back down because backing down, being seen to be weak, whether in Hong Kong, whether over Taiwan, whether on the Indian border, could set up a chain reaction that would lead to his de uh, being deposed. Um, and it could, in some scenarios, it could even result in the CCP regime itself collapsing. So this is a very dangerous dynamic. Now, it's a complicated, very, very complicated issue, and I don't have really time to go into it, but I think that one possible flashpoint would be in the South China Sea. Um, the South China Sea um, is, in the last few months, has been an almost endless series of military maneuvers by both the US and by China. Right now, China has announced military drills in four uh, different uh, uh, oceans, naval maneuvers in four different seas, uh, the South China Sea being one of them. Um, and it's, this has been ongoing throughout the summer. Uh, as a kind of flexing of muscles. And it's not completely ruled out, particularly with uh, the Trump administration uh, possibly being tempted by the idea of a kind of wag the dog um, uh, military diversion, that you could get um, a conflict develop uh, whereby uh, over some of the contested islands, and these islands, they're not inhabited. This is why it might appeal to some military strategists. They're basically lumps of rock in the sea, um, where the China's claims could be challenged by the US, not acting directly, but by backing up the claims of other claimant states like the Philippines or Vietnam. But that, in turn, could lead to a kind of naval standoff. You have to think about what happened in 1962, really, the Cuban crisis, whereby both the US and, and the Soviet Union went really to the brink before backing down from a conflict and something similar is not ruled out so it's a very very dangerous dynamic at the present time yeah the possibility of a uh, armed imperialist conflict is uh, obviously very worrying so thanks for going into that i think it's also worth talking about the economy so i've got another question for you vincent uh, and the impression you get at least when you look at the mainstream media is that china's economy has had this kind of miracle recovery. It's rebounded uh, really quickly from the COVID crisis, at least when you compare it to the deep recessions and depressions that we're seeing develop in the economies of Europe and America and so on. But what's the reality in China? Is that an accurate picture? Uh, is the Chinese economy performing uh, better? Has it had this miracle recovery or not? Yeah, the, the short answer is no, um, that the, the idea that there's been a kind of V-shaped rebound um, or a strong recovery in China is completely misleading. Now, the, the economy is performing differently. It's not the same as the kind of crisis that we've seen in the US or in Western Europe. And these crises, the contraction of GDP is very, very severe, whereas China seems to, apart from the first quarter, where the GDP contracted by 6.8%, it seems to have avoided that. But we have to remember that for the first half of this year, that China's economy has contracted. Even though there was a, a slight growth in the second quarter, if you aggregate them, the first and second quarter, the Chinese economy contracted by over 1%. Now, that's not happened for 40 years. That's unprecedented since China launched out on the road of capitalist restoration. Um, and the... Um, a lot of what's going on is smoke and mirrors. I mean, basically, uh, because the state does play a different role in the economy, it's got a more uh, significant presence in the economy, it's been possible for the Chinese regime to order factories to go back into um, full production. And, and this is what a lot of the economic data is based upon. The factories are producing. The factories are back at work. The question is, where are they going to sell the goods that they're producing? Because clearly the, the imperialist conflict, the Cold War, and the growing protectionism, as symbolized by the Huawei conflict now, with Huawei being shut out of more and more markets as a result of the US campaign against Huawei, but uh, protectionism on a more general level from the EU, from Britain, uh, from Australia, and so on, 
it's going to be much more difficult for China to sell its exports on the world market. And Xi Jinping's regime have recognized that, and then they've launched the idea of the so-called internal circulation model. That's the slogan that they've launched since May of this year. Basically, they mean build up the domestic economy. But the, the problem with that is that consumption is collapsing in China. Uh, it's quite a similar picture to what we have in the uh, advanced capitalist countries. The consumption figures for the second quarter of this year, minus 6%. And for the first quarter of this year, minus 9.5%. So consumer spending is falling. What is going to be the basis for developing the internal the Chinese economy, the domestic economy. And you come here back to the kind of uh, problem of all problems, that the spending power of the Chinese working class is too weak to sustain mass consumption. Um, the Financial Times uh, re reported a survey um, just a few days ago from a, a Beijing consultancy that showed that uh, the people in China who are earning... 300,000 yuan a year, that's around 33,000 pounds per year, they've had a slight increase in their income in the second quarter of this year. But everybody else uh, below that level has had a fall in income. And the worst, the biggest fall is for the, for the, uh, the, the poorest layer, those earning less than 50,000 yuan or less than 5,500 pounds per year. They've lost the most. This is in a society with no welfare safety net, or almost none. There's no unemployment benefit. Uh, uh, pensions are on a, a ridiculously low level. In the, in the rural areas where half the population still live, the monthly pension is £11 per month. So there's no safety net. And, and the, um, the Chinese masses are reacting to the pandemic and the economic crisis and the fact that wages have been cut by pulling back on consumption, because still it's the case that housing, healthcare, and uh, education are the three biggest costs, the so-called three mountains that weigh down on the lives of the working class and the middle class in Chinese cities. So where this kind of consumption boom is going to come from, that's a mystery. I think a couple of things that you've got into there, Vincent, are definitely worth going into a little bit more. Um, you know, on the one hand, obviously, China uh, and well, the Chinese regime attempts to project an image of performing very, very well economically, trying to say that the pandemic hasn't actually negatively affected China's economy. You know that China, that the Chinese economy has bounced back in a V shape very quickly. We would stress as socialists that the reality beneath the surface is actually very different. That there are these rumblings of economic crisis uh, waiting to boil over. And you spoke about how the, the, the working class of China faces a situation where it doesn't really have a social safety net, um, you know, no real welfare state, as we would uh, put it uh, over here in Britain. And I think that really jars with what some people in the capitalist press, and unfortunately, actually, some people on the left in Britain, might say about China. You know, people might say that China's not a capitalist state, even some saying that China is socialist, that the Chinese economy is socialist, because it's run by a party that calls itself the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. Maybe Jacko might want to uh, give some thoughts on this, actually, because we hear about how China has supposedly lifted millions of people out of poverty. How true is that, Jacko? Uh, this is not uh, the real picture of the situation in China. Of course, the living standard compared to the 1950s or 60s has been an increase, uh, have uh, been improved uh, mostly because of the uh, industrialization. And also the uh, rural area, the population from rural area, they were transferred to cities. Uh, however, the workers in cities, they don't uh, enjoy a, uh, a real uh, improvement of their lives in many aspects. Uh, take an example that uh, Li Keqiang, the Prime Minister, just admits that 
uh, over 60, 600 million people, half population of China, uh, living under the 145 US dollar per month. This means that uh, this is actually a part of the power struggle because Xi Jinping said uh, China will achieve the so-called well-off society uh, at the end of uh, this year. So we can see that the so-called the definition of the middle class in China, it is very leading. It is said that there are uh, any uh, in with the monthly income over 220 pounds, uh, it, it is a middle class. However, with this money, you cannot even rent a, a, a very small uh, flat in China in those uh, even second tier cities and in the first tier cities like shanghai or beijing in china the housing price uh, is no much difference from those in london so uh, how uh, the increase of the wage in figures uh, does not give the real picture that the living cost of the workers in china also increase a lot now, the, uh, especially for the migrant workers, uh, for them, there's no any housing benefits or insurance payment or medical uh, insurance for these migrant workers, which move from rural areas to cities to work in factories. And uh, also the medical expense has been uh, ex uh, very, ex uh, is, uh, very high uh, mostly because the uh, hospitals they try to they are very linked to those private uh, pharmacy industry, and the doctors they have to sell a lot of uh, expensive uh, medicines in order to uh, uh, in order to get the income for the so the uh, and also for the schools. In reality, the many of these private school uniforms, textbooks, uh, they, through this kind of channel, they make the education course expenses very, very high. There's no, uh, this kind of basic uh, public investment uh, insufficient. In, and of course, uh, we know that there are the top officials in China, they are all billionaires. Uh, they own different sectors of corporate empires. And through their relatives, they own billions of assets in Hong Kong and foreign countries. And these private capitalists, they are uh, either officials or semi-officials. And uh, at the same time, the uh, workers, they don't even have the right to form their own independence union. There's no bourgeois democracy in China. And it means the repression, uh, the repression is more severe and working class are not even allowed to organize. Yeah, I think that's a very good explanation of the character of the Chinese state and that China is at its core a capitalist state. As you say, workers do face a great deal of exploitation as well as um, environmental devastation. Often it's uh, worse than in many other capitalist countries. Um, but like in other capitalist countries, we know that workers don't just sit back and take that. Uh, they have a tendency to get organized and fight back. So, um, again, uh, Jacko, maybe uh, you can tell us a bit more about workers' struggles in China, um, a bit about maybe the political mood and the temperature of workers and young people there. And uh, given some of the examples of struggle that we've seen over the past few years there, uh, is there any potential for a mass movement to break out in China like we've seen in Hong Kong? Uh, there's a temporary downturn of the mass uh, struggle workers' movement in China because of the pandemic and it created a social panic. And also the factories were not uh, operating uh, in the first half of the man, uh, many months of the first half of the years. And however, the problem of unemployment is a really alarm, very alarming for the uh, government. And that's why they are forced to deal with it now. However, uh, uh, the, they, they will not be able to create enough jobs in order to deal with the problem. There will be a record high of the university graduates with 8.7 million. 
stud uh, students graduate this year. So, and then they, um, less than half of them, they can find a job last month. So uh, this will be a big problem for the regime and the workers and the youth, they feel that there's no future. The, and the strike action, they, it will happen again uh, sooner or later. It can be even the next few months uh, when the economic figures have some rebound and that the workers will question the, whether it's, it is true and also question why the living standard is not uh, improved. And the, yeah, so the political mood uh, temperature of work, especially for young people, is not uh, different. It's not much difference from the uh, Hong Kong young people. They're facing the uh, no job future, the housing prices, and also the, no, the uh, lack of democratic rights. And uh, and also there's stronger sense that for the young people, they feel under Xi Jinping regime, there's no uh, freedom and democratic right. That not only the political materials or news are more controlled, even on different kind of life, the life, the good aspect, like the computer games, entertainment or dramas are banned. So this will be strongly feel felt by a big layer of young people who were not politicized, even they were not politicized before. And the workers' struggle, we, uh, we can see that over the past few years, uh, in 2018, there was an upturn of the cross-province struggle. There was a national uh, truck drivers and construction workers' struggle. Uh, they were organized mainly through internet it put a lot of pressure onto uh, different local governments to improve the uh, situation. And often they were forced to negotiate with the uh, workers in some cities. And, uh, and then there was a uh, smaller uh, worker strike with 100 workers, but uh, in, in summer in 2018, but it was very layer of uh, left-wing socialist students they intervened and they support the worker struggle and they claim themselves as uh, socialists and marxists and they face a very severe re uh, repression forced uh, video confessions and or even uh, they disappear many of them dis uh, were disappeared until uh, up to now uh, this uh, but these struggles were all seen by a wider layer. Tens of thousands of the students and workers uh, uh, in, the chi in China. And this anger will accumulate and the, uh, and the, and the pressure on the regime will increase. So uh, there's, a, uh, there's a potential of the uh, Hong Kong style mass movement breaking out in China. And we need to understand that uh, it can come from like nowhere. We can see the move in Hong Kong last year. Uh, it was uh, it broke out out of a very big deep downturn of the mass movement before the summer last year. And but uh, when it broke out, it just came in a very sudden way. It is same as the struggle now in Thailand or in Belarus that uh, under this kind of global crisis and the uh, situate, then the poor situation for workers and youth, it can uh, break out at any time. Yeah, some very important points have been made there. I mean, particularly in, in, in that point that you made about how even when class battles, even when struggle, seems like it's at a relatively low ebb at a low kind of a low, low amount that can be reversed dramatically in a way that even surprises ruling regimes not just in china but around the whole world i think the the situation in belarus uh, is a is a is a very good illustration of that actually that you know you have workers amassing on the streets taking strike action in a way that uh, you know the dictator lukashenko would never have imagined 
it's there is going to be an inevitable resurgence of struggle on the Chinese mainland. I think we all agree on that here. And it will be important for socialists around the world to show solidarity with the working class of China fighting uh, the CCP dictatorship when that happens. I mean, one final question that I kind of want to throw out there before we bring this episode to a close, a question for Vincent uh, to come in on maybe. I mean, <clears throat> Jacko just mentioned the level of censorship, you know, the, the, the Chinese state control over the media, over entertainment. You know, it's very kind of like an Orwellian kind of situation. Um, given that, and given the very obvious difficulties and dangers that exist for activists in China, what do you think are the prospects for revolution there uh, going forward? If you could just give some thoughts on that, Vincent. Yeah, I mean, I think the first um, thing that we need to uh, realise is that, that Xi Jinping himself and the, the current regime themselves are terrified of revolutionary explosions in China. Um, and they, like us, a year ago, understood that the Hong Kong movement was not just a movement in Hong Kong, very important city, but a city at the end of the day. Um, but they understood that it was an indication of revolutionary uh, tremors that could hit China um, in the next period. And Xi Jinping's recipe for dealing with that is to double down, is to increase the repressive capabilities of the state, uh, even more police, even more surveillance, even more censorship and so on. It's as we've explained time and time again in our analysis, it's like a machine that only has, uh, that, that doesn't have a reverse gear. Um, it's incapable of uh, taking a step back or making concessions. And that's why we, we predicted at the beginning of the Hong Kong movement that this incredible movement by itself will not be enough to force the regime into making any meaningful or significant concessions. More would be needed. That's why we stressed that the Hong Kong movement needed to spread to mainland China and needed to detonate the movement, particularly of the working class in mainland China, which could only be done on the basis of a much more comprehensive program, not just taking up democratic rights, which are crucial, um, we have to deal with the democratic rights because this is about the right to organize a trade union. This is about the right to strike. This is the right about the right to put out a leaflet or a, a start a web page where you discuss the tactics or the demands for your strike. None of that is possible under this regime, which makes it grotesque that there are groups on the left that actually support this regime and believe that it's practicing some kind of socialism. But back to your question about you know, what are the prospects for a revolutionary movement? The CCP is afraid of that. Uh, the splits at the top now, the splits within the CCP are increasingly about how can we prevent such a revolutionary movement developing with a growing layer, the anti-Xi factional layers, believing that Xi Jinping's hardline position is actually uh, making the situation even worse and more or less guaranteeing that at some point there'll be a revolutionary explosion. And there are, there are parallels with the situation in uh, Russia before the October Revolution, that in some respects, the CCP regime resembles the Tsarist regime in Russia, which was also a regime which had, it, it had almost no democratic potential. Uh, it was refusing to make even minimal um, democratic reforms. Uh, and, and Trotsky, in his brilliant analysis of the permanent revolution, explained that the most likely scenario for events in, in Russia would be that the, the, the pressure would build up as if in a, in a boiler, and eventually it would, it would blow. And that's, of course, what happened in 1917. And I think that that's the perspective for what will happen in China. They spend an absolutely mind-bogglingly huge amount on the maintaining the apparatus of, of, of repression. The, the police budget in China last year was 1.4 trillion yuan. That's 153 billion pounds. It's equivalent to the GDP of New Zealand. Um, but even that is unsustainable. I mean, they spend more on the police than they spend on subsidizing housing for the poor. They spend more on the police almost as much as, as they spend on the uh, on the National Health Service in China, which 
as we've already explained, is not free. Everything costs. Um, and, and therefore, th there's a wing that are uh, critical of Xi Jinping's policies. They don't want to go down the road of bourgeois democracy. That's not in the uh, vocabulary of the Chinese regime. They, they, they stand for uh, a dictatorship based on capitalism. But there's a wing that would prefer to go back maybe 15 years or 20 years to a more uh, softer form of the dictatorship to allow a certain element of uh, press freedom, very controlled, but compared to today, much more um, uh, allowing some discussion and so on. And they believe that this is necessary, actually, to prevent an explosion from below in society. So uh, I think one way or the other, the, the Chinese regime is living on borrowed time. The uh, rivalry with U.S. imperialism is increasing the pressure, and in and 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 this means that we can have a perspective where huge events are looming in China in the next period. And the task of socialists and genuine internationalists is to prepare for that, is to forge links with the Chinese working class, and to assist socialists in China, Marxists in China, to organize in the underground and to build a revolutionary alternative. Thank you so much for tuning in for this episode of Revolutionary Ideas. As you may have already gathered, the ISA is a fighting and internationalist organization that's committed to building links and global solidarity among youth and worker activists. If you like what you heard in this episode, please go to our social media accounts and follow us. On Facebook, we are Socialist Alternative, ISA England, Wales and Scotland. On Instagram, we are socialistalternative.ews. On a new TikTok account, we are socialist underscore vids. And on Twitter, we are socialist alt EWS. Go to our website, socialistalternative.net, for more updates on activity and also more up-to-date Marxist analysis. And of course, join us. Thank you so much again to Tom, Connor, Vincent and Jacko. And hope to see you all next time. <laughs>